Welcome back to Imago Gay, a podcast dedicated to the value of Imago Day because equality and dignity of BIPOC and LGBTQ lives matter. This week, we are listening to Nathan Hilton's story. He holds a Master of Arts in Comparative Literature and Literary Theory from the University of Salamanca in Spain, in addition to a BA in English and Theology from Andrews University. He is currently translating Alicia Johnston's book, The Bible and LGBTQ Adventist into Spanish, and focuses his study on the philosophical and theoretical intersections of literature, religion, and spirituality. I first met Nathan a few years back ago at Andrews, and I'm excited to have him share his personal journey through the LGBTQ lens, as well as some of his contributions to the world of queer theology. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenault, and our sponsors for today are Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International. I think I met you during the summer of COVID. We were doing an outside worship. Yes. And that was the first time that I met you. And I had no idea at the time that our paths would cross in the way that they have. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So, yeah, you're right. I was studying at Andrews and there we met. I did go to Andrews from 2014 to 2019. So I did my degree in English literature and theology. And afterwards, I took a year off because of COVID. And then I went to Spain to study a master's in comparative literature and literary theory. Over there, I have been really interested in understanding more about theology and how it connects to literature and the arts and seeing how different modes of understanding the Bible or understanding philosophy can play into how we read text or can play into how we experience the world. So my last project over there in Salamanca in Spain was trying to understand further few mystical fragments we have of the first Black author in a modern language. She lived in the city where I studied in Salamanca, but not many people know about her. So I really wanted to go there and learn about her story and and see how theology played into how she saw God, how she wrote these few verses we have of her. Wow, that's amazing. I think when I met you, I've just always enjoyed our conversations. I was thinking we both kind of share a journey of kind of being in the church and struggling through our own identities, sexual identities. I'm just curious if you could share a little bit about your story, your personal relationship with church, and a little bit about where you're at right now. Yeah, so um, I grew up in Nicaragua. I was there my whole life until I moved to Andrews to study. So I grew up in a very interesting, I would say, Adventist Miller in Managua, Nicaragua, because you have a lot of things playing into how Adventism is developed in Central American countries. One thing is the background of Catholicism and how the Catholic Church plays into the everyday culture of Nicaraguans and then about the people of Latin America. And then you had the how Adventism responds and, or reacts to that culture. So I grew up in the Adventist Church there in Nicaragua, and I, from a very early age, I always felt called to theology. I really loved studying the Bible. I really loved studying things that had to do with God or with people. And I really wanted to go into a career where I could help people. In my last year of high school, I was part of this competition and I earned this very prestigious award for schools in Nicaragua and I received a scholarship. But the scholarship did not cover any type of study in theology. Mm. So I had to 
renounce all this funding that I received and all this accolades that was given because I wanted to study theology and people saw me as I'm crazy. <laughs> they didn't see any purpose or particular understanding as to why someone would go into a career in theology. Many people, even within the church, were not exactly happy about it, but they were, at least you are with us. At least you are part of the church and you're doing ministry. But when I went to Andrews to study, and I, in my own journey, trying to understand myself, and I realized I could not hide my queerness. I did not want to simply erase who I was for the sake of a system or for the sake of someone's comfort. I really wanted to do ministry and to help those who experienced the sad things that I had experienced in my life. And I wanted to be in a place where I could relate to them and I could speak to them and be able to bring all these beautiful things I found in my personal walk with God and with scripture yeah. to their experience. But I realized I could not do so from a hidden from a hidden place or from a place where I could not define myself properly. So it was a very confusing, I think, experience altogether. I decided to, while I was studying theology, to eventually come out, to eventually say I'm queer, I'm gay, I'm a theologian, and that's part of my story and part of my journey. And I mean, despite of the understanding I arrived to with the Bible, I knew I will always be queer. Yeah. I keep telling people I'm queer when I sing and I'm queer when I preach and I'm queer when I wake up or when I go to sleep, it's still the same me, the same person. But when I came out, a lot of people back home in Nicaragua were not very happy about it. Many people who whom I knew in the States even were not happy about it either. And I received a lot of criticism, a lot of critique from people around me because they were not they were not about trying to understand anyone who could practice theology and also be queer. So my church in Nicaragua decided to do this process where they would erase me from the books, from the church and all these things. But the way in which they did it was very interesting, I guess, because you should notify the person, talk to them. The goal is for you to actually gain the person and then make them feel as if you are caring for them in the process and all these other right. things. Matthew 18. Like right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But the way they did it was not exactly that way. I learned about this because the pastor texted me during the pandemic, a new pastor whom I never seen, texted me during the pandemic and said to me, we will let you know about your case. And I was You're like, like what's the case? <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the trial, what's going on? Yeah, I was really curious about it. I, was, I really thought they were trying to talk to me because of my grandmother who lives still in Nicaragua. And I that she was, she was in her house during the whole pandemic. So I thought they were trying to, you know, to see what's going on with her, how she was doing. But in reality, they were trying to talk to me about what I'm called my case. When I talked to him, he said that I had shared a post, I had made a post on Facebook or something where I had mentioned that I was queer and I loved queer people. And I was, well, this is not a bad thing. This is not right. something you should be rallying against, but he didn't think so. So what I told him is like, I would have a space where I could see the people who are uncomfortable with me and talk to them because they did not want to be made, I guess, a public example. I really wanted to engage people and to see and to let them understand despite what they think about it or what they choose to do at the end. I wanted to engage them with it was more human. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, the years passed, I think perhaps one year or two during the pandemic, nobody talked to me about the issue, I think, further. But then when I went to Nicaragua last summer, Somebody realized I was there and then they gathered the, the board 
very quickly for when I was there. So they told me that if I wanted to go, I could go and they would talk about what I called my issue or my case. And then it took me a while to think about it, pray about it. My family was, did not agree with me going to that, to that thing because they saw it as something bad. But I, what I kept hearing, I think, from many people is that I had to be either afraid or I had to be, to have shame. I mm. had to have shame about me coming out and their reactions were justified in me causing shame. I mean, I think the line of the manual they quoted to me from the manual in Spanish, it says, you're bringing shame to the cause. Wow. So to me, it was very interesting because the way in which they processed that, I was what exactly is your shame? Is it my queerness? Is, is it me? What, what, what about me causing your shame? So when I was thinking about it, I was, no, there's nothing I should be ashamed about. And that's what's the very point of me sharing my journey publicly to let people know that you can be as part of this Christian walk, you can be queer and there is something to be ashamed about because this is who you are. This is your whole self, your whole being. Exactly. So, you know, as this whole thing happened, I went to the church, I had a conversation with the pastor and with the board and I think it went better than I had imagined, but oddly so at the end, I mean, this, these were people that picked me up when I was a baby. Like this, this summer I'm pregnant. There's there are people who are, know my whole family and have been with me, but none of them ever reached out to me. They rather chose to have this pastor who was new to the church just deal with my case, quote unquote, and never have to engage wow. me. So I told them that I really, I really went in saying to them, I did not understand how, if they really felt concerned about me or quote unquote, my soul, how come they never actually reached out to me? How come they never talked to me? I knew they were talking to other people because right. oddly, so they talked to my family members. They were trying to quote unquote, get to know what was going on, but they never actually talked to me. So yeah, I think the experience was a very interesting experience altogether. I mean, the pastor who talked to me initially was not there for the event because they moved them to a different church. And then the pastor that had to deal with the whole thing was a new pastor. So I saw the new pastor really juggling <laughs> or trying really to address all these, these things and the concerns that people of the church had. And it seemed it was the members that had this concern, but because that had come out, out of this very public space, because of me winning in the competition before I went to America and then me studying theology, I was, I mean, if you go to my school, I think there are still some pictures of me in the competition. They put me in brochures or stuff <laughs> saying you should yeah. come to the school because your kid can learn so-and-so or could earn these awards and all this other stuff. So they really used my image for their purposes right? because now I'm sharing that I'm publicly gay and Christian. Now they are upset about that and they don't want to have my image associated with that, with all these things they had before. So now they have to make a public example out of me because I know many people who have the same experience and nobody cared about their stories, but with me was a whole different thing. So I don't know. To me, the experience all throughout, it felt like an eye-opening experience. I had to learn and to see how people really felt and how they really saw me. I realized that those who were, whom I thought were my friends, perhaps weren't as close to me as they thought. And perhaps those who I thought were not my friends actually thought about me more or in a better light than those who, who said to be my friends in the church. And then to realize as well that um, there's a lot of systems that are in place as our stories developed. I think I read in this book during that time as well, that many of our churches sometimes have shepherds that don't know how to care for many sheep. 
Right. Um, it's so easy when there's somebody who is not related, right? Exactly. There's a disassociation. And I I relate so much to your story. And I just, I think that you're incredibly brave to have gone there and decided to face this head on. I can tell you that even in my particular situation, I think it was the people who never met me. So people who were part mm -hmm. of boards or part of the funding, who were putting the pressure on the people who knew me to make these type of harsh decisions. And it's it's so much easier when somebody is removed from relationship, yeah. this new person coming in to make those kind of those harsh decisions. And I just, I'm just curious, how, how are you feeling during this time? I mean, were you, were you feeling a sense of betrayal? Were you feeling scared or were you feeling just empowered in this moment? Cause you knew that you were doing the right thing. I think it's a mixture of everything. It felt like a whole life in just a few days. And the pastor asked me this during the meeting, how I was feeling and what I really wanted from them. I really give him props for the way in which he handled things because Jump into something that's with no prior experience or knowledge, it was really hard, it was complicated. But I gave him props for the way in which he addressed what was going on in that moment. And he asked me that, how I was feeling and what I wanted from the church. And I told them that what I was feeling in that moment was loss. I was feeling lost because I think just to realize that all this community, I mean, I, I grew up in the church. My grandmother who raised me also grew up in the church. And her grandmother also was part of the church. I've been, I think, in ministry in all kind of different capacities for a, for a while already. I did ministry in Honduras, and I did it in Nicaragua, and I did it also in the States. And I always felt I had Adventism wherever I went. If I would travel to a different country, I could go to a church and feel that sense of belonging. People there were your family, or they knew how you thought, or knew, or had the same interests in mind. But when I realized that many of the people that I grew up with did not see me as more than something they could use for their goals, mm. made me feel a sense of loss. I now have to grapple with the idea that not loved in the way that I thought I was loved or the way that I needed to be loved from that mm. community. So that caused loss. But then on the other side, I did feel great empowerment. I think that's the biggest takeaway I had from the experience. I never thought it would feel that way. But once I went through the experience, just to be able to stand in my truth, speak it so boldly. And interestingly, so the reaction I saw from many members, even those whom I knew from childhood and whom I knew were involved in the process, they could not see me face to face. They were all wearing their masks and stuff because of COVID. But when they went to me to say, bye, nice to see you or whatever, the regular small talk, they could not talk to me to my eyes. They could not do eye contact. Yeah. And when I saw that going on, I was, oh, wow, this is a very powerful experience because I'm thinking if you're so convinced of what you're preaching is the right thing and you're doing it in the right way, why is it that you are the one with shame? If you yep. told me I had to be ashamed to even come here and show up, how come it is you, the ones that have all this power, these connections or these different things, how come it's you, the one who is in shame? And I don't know, it felt, I guess, very empowering just to know that I stood in that truth and I felt I own my story for for the first time. I mean, it's very hard already to deal with so many issues, but interestingly, so when I saw these members and people have this very interesting ideas about what being queer is yeah. and then seeing their discourse and then seeing me, they could not 
put it all together. They cannot You're not even... the monster that they were painting. Exactly. You exactly. Didn't fit the description of the criminal they were making up in their minds. Yes. So that that very thing, I think, just just altogether made the whole experience very interesting because it made them face our reality of the human reality of what we're talking about. But also at the end, I also realized something very interesting. One of the members of the board came to me afterwards and she said, excuse me, when you were talking, you mentioned a lot about the LGBTQ plus community or being queer. What does that mean? And to me, it was very powerful, but very shocking as well, because I realized that the whole meeting <laughs> was done with the purpose of discussing these issues and the fact that there were members present that had no idea what the whole thing was about or how to even, and I I'd even had any knowledge of right. the very thing we were talking about to me was also another realization. I saw that there were, I guess, people involved in that community or that board, or even there's a church at large that had particular interests and all those reasons that I saw, and even them, they were also, I guess, being used or being used as props for a very big theater agenda yeah the, exactly. there are people who are there who i don't even know why i'm here i don't know what <laughs> the is but they're just being used for right. this other person's goals yeah exactly yeah wow I, I just i think it's such a powerful story and i i want to keep these stories alive and i think yours is one of of really a lot of hope. It sounds like you walked away with so much in the sense of, I'm sure there's still a lot of grief and loss that you're experiencing, but that there was a sense of empowerment at the end of it and that you were able to walk away with your head held up high looking yeah. people in the eyes while they were unable to have that same just self-confidence at the end of that conversation gives hope to people who are struggling. I know there are people right now who are saying, am I going to come out of the closet? Do I want to pay the price of losing my community? Maybe you can talk a little bit more about what was the loss for you. And as somebody who studied theology, I know when I I left the seminary after I graduated, it did feel a loss of yes, a community, but also what the heck am I going to do with this degree now? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because yes. it feels essentially useless since it's no longer, because I'm no longer really associated with the church and would never be hired by a church. So how have you reconciled your own studies with where you are right now? Yeah, I mean, it has been a whole journey. It has <laughs> been interesting, I would say, and I'm still going through it. But I mean, even even when I was studying theology, I knew that I had other passions. I, I knew that I was not the stereotype of the pastor that people saw. I knew yes. that it did not fit yep. the mold Same. and all those things. Yep. I was like, just beyond being queer, I know this is, system in itself is not going to help me achieve the purpose that I have or help people in the way that I want to help them. So I decided to study another major and I did English at Andrews. And I think English opened up my mind to see, I guess, just how first the Bible is connected to the whole, whole, everything we do in a way, how understanding texts and reading and writing is part of the way in which humans see the world and the way in which we process reality. And just seeing that, I think, allowed me to understand further of what it meant for me to, I guess, just be a whole person. So as I was sitting at Andrews, I was doing my own stuff in theology, but I also decided to go into studying the lives of all this very famous figures during the Middle Ages and during the early Renaissance, I saw in their lives like a mode of living that I really, really liked. 
I read all poetry from John Donne, St. John of the Cross, and Teresa of Avila, Judith of Norwich. And I saw in them this type of passion that God was part of a bigger world than the one of a cathedral or just a church. Mm. And then I felt really attracted to that. And I, those, I mean, reading their writings, I think, was something that would kind of save me. Because in my journey, I really, really felt very distressed. I think my whole process before I came out, trying to grapple with being a theologian and or being a pastor and then being queer and how all these things all come into the same space and how I could ever see myself in a way that I've thought was just human, uh, as someone valuable, someone who carries the image of God. I had a very hard time trying to grapple with the idea that I am still a person, that I'm still loved, and I can be all these things at the same time that I didn't choose. But in their writings, I saw this quest for searching, for trying to understand further who God was. So regardless of what I do later with my life, I really find inspiration in who they are. So for my master's, I decided to just go into that route altogether of doing literature and understanding further of as to how these figures live their lives and see kind of how, I guess, either their poetry or their modes of living or their daily practices came into the way in which they wrote and the way in which they processed the world and how they were able to grapple with their depression. Because as you read all their writings, it's, oh, yes, she had this vision or she had the estigmata, which is when they had all these wounds that Christ had, and she's feeling Christ, look at her. And then you're you're reading that you're like, no, she's suffering. You're, like, you're reading that, looking at people that, that are obviously having several illnesses, either bodily or mental, right. and people are not exactly helping them, but you see them searching constantly as to how they can connect this illness they have with a sort of, some, some sort of meaning. And I don't know, just seeing their lives play out in their writings and to see what they became, I think it inspired me a lot yeah. as to how I saw myself or how I could find, I guess, purpose in the midst of chaos. So I really just went to study in their, their lives. And that's really what I really love doing, trying to understand as to how the Bible inspired their walks of life and then seeing how their walks of lives could inspire other people. And you see that there were other people like us, they were, they are coming from all kinds of experiences from poverty to uh, dealing with their race or with their gender in the time they lived in or seeing how readings of the Bible for their time did not allow them to access God in the way they needed. So just, just seeing the way in which their lives could play out in a way that was more meaningful and then seeing cognitively how their minds were able to approach that reality just made me I was like no I really want to understand this further yeah. so it just went all in and I think that kind of gave me a route as to how I saw my career developing and I'm currently still working on that I love that I I love right now working on the series bigger boxes for a bigger God looking at the ways that some of the boxes that we've constructed throughout time whether that's the gender roles or whether that's the classist or racist hierarchies that society creates, mm. like these are boxes that people cannot thrive under. And that even within our own church structures, there are these boxes, especially for gay, lesbian, bi, trans yeah. people that you cannot, you literally have to, to create a new box to be able to thrive. And it sounds like you found an avenue to really access a bigger picture of who God is and the way that he relates to just regular people and suffering and helping us to create meaning. And I, I think in some ways life is so short and our lives can be so yeah. sad and we all 
want meaning out of life, even in our sorrow and even in our suffering. Yes. And that it is a beautiful thing to pursue. I think meaninglessness is kind of the epitome of what, I don't know, of my own hell. (laughs) (laughs) If I were to sit and think, okay, all of this is meaningless, but it seems you haven't given up the fight to really bring order, like you said, to the chaos of the things around you. Something that I think is burgeoning from that is a a work that you're going to be working on. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about it, but the, this, the title caught me. I thought, I love how your own journey and your acceptance with your own identity, but your, your true passion for theology is melding together. And I think what's going to be a really beautiful product in this world, which is you're working on something called the androgyny of Christ, metaphorical blendings in the maternal Christology of Julian of Norwick. And I think that that's, I mean, just the title alone is very intriguing. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about this work that you'll be working on in the future. Yes. So um, in my studies, I found a lot of different lives that had all kinds of different things that I really wanted to emulate. But I always found, I guess, very perplexing and very intriguing when I met someone who, had, who was the first to do anything. I was taught, how are they coming to this idea first? How are they being the first person to do anything? Or how are you jumping into being this awesome human being just from the get-go, just being the first and doing this? And as I was studying English, I found this author whom I really, really liked. Her name is Julian of Norwich. So she lived during the 14th century in England, and she was an English anchoress. So during the 14th century, there were many people who chose willingly to go into seclusion and just live their lives inside of a church. And they just pray to God and read all day and dedicate your whole life to understanding who God is better. They took votes, but they were not nuns nor monks. They were just regular people, regular lay people who chose to be in these different churches and abide in this space and stay within a cell to try to meditate who God was. So Julian of Norwich is the first woman to ever write in modern English. She is a person who had a series of visions. So she asked God in her writing, she says she asked God for a vision that could help her understand better his love for her. So God, according to her, gave her all this bodily illness and she was almost dying. And then when she was in the cell almost dying, she realized that the crucifix that was in front of her started to bleed. And she mm-hmm. saw all this blood coming down very crazily from this image and then she saw Christ and she had like 17 different visions in the next following days and she has a date when it happened when they started what she saw and then she went on to write this book which again was revolutionary for her age because no other women were writing in vernacular English near this time but she's employing this writing to kind of express her idea and the only conviction she has is that God told her to write it God told her that she had to go against the grain and put her writing into this experience but besides all those wonderful things what I really liked from her writings was the fact that she spoke of God as mother she spoke of Jesus as mother I guess we're very used to hearing from other denominations that they can worship, I guess, Mother Mary, or they can worship other figures as mother. And we're, yeah, God can be a mother, or other people can see other divinities or other people they can worship as mother. But I had never seen someone think of Jesus as mother. And the way she goes on to explain that, she says, it's because Christ 
thus three things that she sees in a mother. So she, God, well, first of all, Jesus births the church. So the, all these passages talked about the church coming out of Jesus and, and Christ not having descendants and then Christ having the church as its own descendants. There are these eliminated manuscripts in the Middle Ages that have these images of Christ bleeding. So Christ was supposed to have seven different wounds, his hands, his forehead, and his side. And the wound in his side is envisioned in a way like female genitalia, which is a very complex thing to kind of put together in all this imagery. But then they imagine the church literally coming out of the side of Jesus. They have a little woman called Ecclesia, which is a church coming out of his side. So Christ is a mother because he gives birth to the church in their imagination and at the way in which they imagined it. It's all together, very literally so. And then the second part is that Christ feeds the church. So the example of Christ giving his body and his body being the flesh and blood that we take during communion, those very things are the body of Christ. Therefore, just like a mother gives from her own body to her children is the way in which Christ feeds the world. And also all this imagery with uh, Christ giving birth to the church of Christ, having the side wound that had water and blood in it, for them was the way in which children are born. Yeah, so breaking the water. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So there are all these different connections she starts to make about how Christ is this figure uh, of this, this mother. Mm-hmm. And she uses that imagery, not only just to say Christ's mother, but as to vindicate her own role. During her time, people are thinking that women cannot write, women don't have the intelligence, or women have smaller brains. Wow, look what kind of crazy things you can imagine putting onto women. But she sees the image of God as something she carries and also that every mother carries, and that God embodies this divine motherhood. So Christ becomes this literally androgynous body. Christ mm-hmm. is this male figure very masculine in the sense that he's the father but then he's also this female figure that's given birth and is doing all those different things and feeding and nurturing and caring for the church and for the world and then she sees that god is taking care of her particularly so she blends these ideas and she comes out with this very queer looking christ and i just thought this is just wonderful when you open these ideas you would think you're reading this from a i guess a very quote-unquote liberal 21st century theologian but they're reading a 14th century anchoress hidden in a cell in a random city in england writing about her experience seeing jesus as a mother and how that experience allowed her to be, allowed her to express herself and gave her the power to go around the world and still share that idea of who God was with other people. So yeah, it's it's just trying to understand different ways of how we envision God coming to being. When I was sitting at Andrews, my thesis had to do a lot with how humans come to understand God, how God is envisioned through the human mind. So I went a lot into the Trinity and how we use the metaphors of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or or if they are metaphors, or how they came to be, because the Bible kind of changes all throughout. You have God as a husband, and then God as a mother hen, and then God as a father, and then God as a son. But the images are a lot of them. And they have different times in which they are prioritized. There are times in which the Bible saw more fit to have God as king, because that imagery allowed the people in that world to see God in a better light. In other times, people saw God as father, because that allowed them to envision God in a different light. And then now we, post-Bible times, can kind of put them all together and say, God is all these things. But in their time, 
people had particular images that were, that were very close to and that really helped them to see how God was. And ultimately, we know that God can be all these things and none of them at the same time because he's beyond all these ideas we have. But I don't know, just seeing how this medieval woman took all these writings to heart and she was able to make space for herself. Exactly. When we talk about queer theology, it's about making space for us to exist within this community. She saw this vision of who God is and it made space for her to be a woman theologian. And even to see God as androgynous, I think, makes space for other queer people to be in the church to say, oh, I see myself here. I think even um, Lynn Tonstad, I think she talks about how maybe she's taking from the Julian of Norwich, the, the, the wound in the side that some even trans persons are looking at this and saying, oh, the idea of Christ being made into a woman to birth the church, yeah. right? That this is in some ways a model that gives a sense of identity for me to also belong to the church, that yes. this isn't a strange thing that God kind of embodying both genders in in this way kind of makes space for me to belong. And I think at the end of the day, that's what we're looking for. We want to belong as a part of a community of faith. Yeah, it's it's something very interesting, I guess, when you when you come to think about it, because many people would would think of these things and under the first reaction would be, this cannot be. Yeah. Right, you are trying to put God into human models or try to make God human. But when you read the scriptures, you find that the first person who ever gave a name to God was Hagar. Mm. The first person who ever decided to name God. And the idea of naming God is how you come to conceptualize God through human words. The first person in the Bible that employs language to try to conceptualize an idea of who God is, is Hagar. And we know because of her story that this is a slave Egyptian woman, a foreigner in the house of the patriarch, who is kicked out, basically, of of the whole house. And she is this person who is embodying all these different things that she should not, quote unquote, have access to the right knowledge of God, because she's a person who's not at the top. She doesn't have the power, nor the education, nor the knowledge, nor the connection, because it's a patriarch, ultimately, the one who's connected to God. But she is the one that calls God the all-seeing God, and then God sees that as a good thing. Yeah. And then every story in the Bible talks about someone naming God, even Moses encountering the experience of the burning bush and then God speaking to him and all these other things kind of follow a similar example like Hagar. So you encounter that people have had this engagement with God, trying to name the mystery of who God is from the very beginning. And every part of our human language is ultimately just that very human. And I think when we realize how... God, I guess, is so willing to connect to us in our in our limited humanity. God is so willing to connect to us. And God is part of that very ways in which our minds come to see him. He's part of that yeah. process. I, I guess we can encounter so many wonderful images that allow us to see God in so many different ways. It's that prism. You end up seeing all these different colors, the same phenomena. And I think when you read many of these authors all throughout history and throughout the world, you encounter many images for God that allow you to understand better who God yeah. is. We can, we can do communion all day, but I would have never thought... <laughs> 
never ever thought to conceptualize God in the way that Julian did, but every, when you read her writings, everything makes so much sense. And then she's able to allow a space for her own body and for her own experience of who she is and see God in a way that could vindicate her own humanity and then also allow her to carry the image of God. So I, yeah, it's, I it's just like it. inspiring altogether. It's so inspiring. And I'm also inspired by you. I mean, I think for me, I've lost some steam, you know, when you go through <laughs> these experiences with the church and there is trauma that's involved, I think it can be a little discouraging. And I just see you kind of continuing in the, the pursuit and finding these marginalized voices that bring an alternative view to, again, make space for how we can coexist in community, in faith. And so kind of my last question to you would be, what's your future in engaging with the church and with theology? And how are you navigating your own spirituality as a gay Christian? That's a very big question. I think now that I'm not constrained by what others assume of me, or even just the career that I had and everything that I had to do to kind of fit in that mold, which I would never fit, now that I'm Without it, I think I can envision myself more broadly. Currently, I am considering as to what programs I should go into, what PhD programs I should go into. I'm still in love with the whole religion, literature, and visual arts thing. So I'm still trying to blend them in a way that I am I'm doing justice to the whole thing altogether. But I think when it comes to the church and when it comes to how I see myself in spirituality and religion, I'm, I'm thinking of one particular phrase that this author, Chimano Ngosiadici, did on this particular talk she had. She gave this advice that you should make literature your religion. And I was like, what does she really mean by this? When I heard the whole thing, what I understood from it was that you have to find the ways in which your everyday life your everyday connections, every part of your whole self and your body and your being allow you to experience a type of systematic way of connecting to something greater than yourself. Yeah. Uh, I think seeing literature and seeing art is something that connects you to a higher sense of yourself and being in the world. It's just one of those few routes that you have to connect with the world. But I really, I just wanted to take that as my mantra. I really wanted to make it as to I want to make literature in a way my religion, when I make literature my practice of getting to know others and getting to know God and getting to know people. I think initially when I came out, I got very entrenched into defending myself and showing others how I was right. And and then I realized people have their ideas and then all the effort I'm putting into them is not helping me be in a better place. So I decided that I wanted to be, I really wanted to create a world for myself where I could be fully me, where I could flourish, to create that ground where I can just nurture myself and I can flourish and nurture others. But I don't have to be trying to fight. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Defending myself in the midst of everything, but I should start with seeing myself as a whole self and to see how I can cultivate the sense of holism within myself that I can share with others. So as of now... I am trying to still navigate the whole thing with the church, with, I guess, just organized forms of denominations and religions and all these things. But I'm, what I'm trying to be faithful to is that, first of all, a sense of self, 
be faithful to how I see the world and how I see God or how I see nature, or how I see people and human beings around me and allowing those things to kind of create a bigger cosmos where I can flourish in the way that I need to flourish and I can help others to flourish as well. If you'd like to support Nathan Hilton as he continues the translation of Alicia Johnson's book, The Bible and LGBTQ Adventist, he can be reached on Instagram at N-A-T-H-L-E-O-P, Nath Leop, or you can write to at Pastor Alicia Johnston on Instagram as well. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Imago Gay, as we continue to connect over stories that unite us all under one giant umbrella, human. If you have a story that you'd like to share, you can write to me at Kendra Arsenault with an X on Instagram. And if you're enjoying the content, please be sure to rate this podcast on Spotify or Apple podcast and share this episode with a friend. Just a reminder that Kinship is offering some phenomenal classes this month, and it is a safe space to gather with other LGBTQ Christians, Adventists, non-believers, ex-believers, and those who are looking to thrive in community. There is so much health and healing and affirming spaces. You can follow SDA Kinship at sdakinship.org. And you can also follow our sponsors for this week, Spectrum Magazine at spectrummagazine.org. As always, stay safe and never be afraid to be you.